Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers, learning from the guests we interview. Brian, my trusty co-host, are you on the other line? I'm here, Jared. All right, man. How have you been? We haven't caught up in a while. Yeah, doing good. Just uh, trying to weather the winter storms and rain here and Getting excited to do some habitat work here once the bucks start dropping their antlers. Yeah, yeah. What do you have in mind? Well, I definitely have to do some uh, chainsaw work like every other year. I still have got some open patches of timber that are too open that need to be uh, thinned out and get some sunlight to the ground. Yep. I got my new habitat hook from Nick. Looking forward to putting that in the service. And uh, a little bit later on, when we when we start planting, I also got the uh, Packer Max from Lincoln. So I got all kind of goodies. I'm itching to put to work here. Very nice, very nice. Yeah. Do you have a lot of food left on your farm too? Do they or do they eat you out of house and home? Yeah, there was a good bit of standing corn left. The beans were gone about a month ago when I was up there. Uh, plenty of radishes and turnips like normal. They turned their noses up at that and go for the good stuff so (laughs) hopefully with it all being fertilized and palatable i'm hoping they eventually hit that very nice yeah i've been uh i've been out just one time with the chainsaw and the habitat hook um i found out my buddy who borrowed my saw in the fall must have ran it through the dirt because as soon as i got out there and started cutting it was not sharp so that was fun. Oh, Didn't man. have a backup chain, you know. 
stupid stuff. Um, but right. I did get a nice barrier wall cut and hinged over. Um, it was probably low 20s that day, and almost every tree stayed intact with the use of the hook. So with that hook, I didn't have to cut through as far to get it to hinge. You just maybe not go as far, and then you push it over. So really, the trees stay intact. Um, and that worked out yeah, great. that's awesome. Yeah, I I planned, I kind of planned it to where I'm blocking off where I park my vehicle. Um, I've had deer kind of browse and bed right up front near my parking spot, but hopefully this year it's going to grow into a massive uh, barrier wall, if you will, and hide my parking and access. So that's pretty yeah, much all I've been after doing. We, after we talked to Dr. Jim, I went on YouTube and watched a bunch of his videos and uh, brushed up on all my chainsaw safety and, and the, the proper way to cut and it's amazing a lot of the things you do over the years from different people telling you how you should do it and you sort of get a little bit off course and off centered and uh, I recommend anybody that got a chance to catch up on that podcast with Dr. Jim to check him out on YouTube great information um, tells you exactly how shows you exactly how to cut the tree and uh, the things that he was talking about in the podcast, you know, you can visually see it on his videos, and he goes into a lot of details. Yes, sir, and I think it's uh, important that you mention that that how to fell a tree correctly and, you know, brush up on that stuff because, you know, dropping trees is no joke. Um, right. Along with your, your safety equipment, helmet, glasses, and chaps, uh, everybody out there, if you're going to get out in the woods with a saw, make sure you're you're wearing that stuff. It's it's very important, and you want to make it home to see your, your family and wife and kids and all that. So be sure to wear that stuff, guys. Um, getting right down to it, Brian, I don't know about you, but I am fired up about today's podcast. Oh, man. For anybody that read and pushed the play button, you know we are interviewing Mark Drury from Drury Outdoors. Um, this is like my hero of the hunting world, so I can't wait to, to talk to him. We got, a a bunch of good stuff we're going to get into. Um, what about you, Brian? You fired up? Oh, I'm fired up. I've been following the Drury Brothers for a long time since they come on the scene, and, uh, just amazing to see the progression and just the amount of knowledge that they have gained over 30 years of being, uh, whitetail hunters and paying attention to the habitat and you know everything that they've learned on that end of it I'm, I'm looking forward to diving in deep to get his opinion on everything yeah and and you said that correctly i mean i think why i like those guys so much mark matt terry taylor the whole family um they provide so much information i mean it's not just hey i shot this big buck look at me it's Here's how, why, the plan I did, that work I put in January to October, like the whole thing. I think that's why I've always, you know, kind of steered towards them is just their, their humbleness and their, their amount of knowledge is just, it's, it's a ton. It's awesome. Yeah, and the details that they share just blows you away. It's just really incredible, and they're, they're gracious enough to share it and do it in a, in a way that everybody can understand. 
Yes, sir. Well, let's get Mark on the line, guys, and uh, make sure you listen towards the end. They are giving away an actual farm. Yep, they're giving away a farm. So be sure to pay attention to that. Sign up for their DeerCast app, and uh, you'll hear more about that. Let's get right into it with Mark. First, I want to thank our sponsors, The Habitat Hook from Nick Nation, Killer Food Plots, Packer Max line of Cold to Packers, Dip That Hydrographics, and Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Guys, that's enough of us uh, rambling. Let's get Mark Drury on the line. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Mark. How are you? Hi, Mark. How are you guys doing? Doing great. We're doing great. How are you? I can't complain a bit. Mark, we normally start out these podcasts by hearing about our guests. We like to, you know, refer back to a story or or, you know, something about you growing up and getting into habitat management. Would you mind giving us a quick rundown on maybe the, the first farm you started working on, your equipment back then, and how you got into managing land for wildlife habitat? Well, it really, it was a slow evolution. I mean, from the time I remember going hunting, I always had a desire to plant food and do food plots. And back then, you know, we just got a hold of whatever equipment we could get, whether that was a pallet behind a four-wheeler or you know, you beg, borrow, or steal a farmer to come disc it for you. This goes back probably 30-plus years ago. Um, you know, that was back in the 40-acre club where Terry and I used to hunt growing up there in the River Hills in St. Genevieve County, Missouri. But we always wanted to do food plots. Now, when it transitioned into owning my own piece of dirt, that would date to, like, 1997. And um, I, I bought a... 60-horse John Deere tractor and uh, a used disc, a used cultivator, and uh, the basic essentials we needed to to put the plots in. And I bought a used beef drill. Uh, luckily, there close to the to the farm in Iowa, there was a, a used uh, equipment dealer, and I, I was his customer of the year there for a few years till I got you know every everything I needed to put them in. So we've since graduated up you know, bigger tractors and bigger implements and anything you can find to be more efficient and uh, more soil, uh, more soil-minded, if you will. We do a lot of no-tilling. And okay. If we, if, we, if we decide to break the soil, it's going to be in a grade-A soil or in a bottom where you're not going to experience much much erosion. So uh, I just absolutely despise erosion. So most of what we do these days is, is no-till or, or certainly minimal tillage. No, that's, that's good to hear. I was going to ask you that, and we seem to revert back to that in our conversations a lot. Uh, so it seems to be the the better way to do things, at least, uh, you know, more soil conscious. So um, now, how long ago do you think this was when you were, you know, getting the bean drill and, and you were that guy's best customer? How many years ago was that? How long have you been doing this? That was, that was 97. 97, wow. Cool. Yep. That yep. was 97. Well, I bought it in October of 97, so it really would have been 98, 99, right in there. Okay. Very nice. Now, you mentioned when we were talking on the phone prior to recording, you're looking at some new farms, and, and I've seen some of your later your latest videos. Um, let's get right into how you devise the initial plan. What do you do when you first get to a farm uh, to, to schedule your, your habitat management plans? You know, I think it really it really comes down to even before you get to the farm. I mean, I'm I'm a big map guy, and I, I just spend endless endless hours looking at 
uh, Onyx or Google Earth, either one somewhere where I can look at a map and then drill down on topography uh, on a particular piece of ground, not only there but also in the surrounding, say, square couple miles, if you will, just to look at where deer might be traveling to or from, and not only during the latter part of the season but also the earlier part of the season. You know, their travel habits start expanding gradually throughout the season through the rut, and then all of a sudden they'll contract again and it'll all focus around a food source. So, you know, during the early season, you've got deer scattered across the landscape, and then in, in November they really start, you know, crossing paths and expanding home ranges and then all of a sudden in December they'll suck back into thermal cover and food so I try to take a piece of property and I dissect the entire season and go okay where might they be in the early part of the season what are we looking at for travel during the rut and then how much thermal cover do I have and that that takes a lot of hours to dissect and compare a piece of property versus all the, the landscape around it as, as compared to other places or other food sources or other other cover. So it really starts there, and then, then you compare what you've seen on the computer to some footwork and how you feel once you're on that piece of property and you start to analyze, you know, the south-facing hillsides, how much thermal cover is there, um, the north-facing hillsides, the bottoms, the travel corridors, you know, and you start to develop a plan. It's it's uh, multifactorial in terms of how deer are going to you know maneuver through that landscape. But through time, you start to you start to see certain patterns that that will you know will reoccur. Okay. And when you get to your your feet on the ground and you're starting to see these these patterns, do you notice if some properties are are more of an early season type property or a or a rut? transitional type property or what do you find there and do you do you coordinate your plan to that or do you do the same thing no matter what in terms of put food in next to cover type thing well it's very difficult to assess it um beforehand and go all right this property is going to be the best at this time of year you can have a hunch but you really don't know till you till you own the farm two or three years and in my opinion or till you have a lease two or three years like that takes hunting experience to really, you know, make a determination. So, you know, I always look at it and go, all right, here's what I think. So I'm going to plan a strategy on the front end when I don't know about a piece of property that will have a food source that accommodates all of the different seasons. And then through time, mostly through trail pictures, um, I'm going to learn how that property hunts at the different throughout the different phases of the year, and then in future years, I can plant accordingly. So you can have a hunch, but you really don't know until the deer, you know, tell you exactly what they're doing. Because that will even change from year to year based on crop rotation in the area, you know, depending on the size of the property. You know, if it's big enough where where you are the crop rotation, that's great. But in most cases, you know, somebody has an 80 or a 160 or, you know, a 100 or a 120, whatever the size is, so crop rotation has a lot to do with deer movement, a lot to do, as with, as is the, the weather conditions. You know, is it going to be a, a warm fall? Your farm's going to feel like one farm during a warm fall, and the next year if it's a cold fall, it'll feel like a completely different planet, you know. So 
it, it really takes years to figure out how they're going to react to the landscape and, and the weather and, and the crop rotation. Okay. Now, Mark, a lot of our listeners are dealing with some flat ground and some flat farms. Do you have any experience with any flat ground out that way? I know you were talking about paying attention to topography. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> when I'm on a, a flat farm, <coughs> excuse me. When I'm on a flat farm, it's generally a bottom piece of ground, you know, because we have okay. a lot of we have a lot of topography. So, you know, we have a lot of saddles and ridges and bottoms. But if I'm dealing with extended flat areas like you're describing, it's generally when I'm when I'm out in in the river bottoms. Um, and those are very, very tricky to hunt, uh, in sure. my opinion, because you don't have topography helping funnel movement. You know, you're really dependent upon cover and fence structure and waterway structure and ditch structure uh, to help uh, that movement. So that, they can be tricky because oftentimes the movement can be spread out in flat ground. That's what I've noticed through the years. It's not it's not as defined as it is within you know, something with some elevation, you know, differences. Now, Mark. Right. Now, I'm not, go ahead, Brian. I was just going to ask about the uh, manipulations for the flat ground. Um, I noticed sometimes you guys will use um, fence gaps or gates in, in your different layouts. Is that is that something you can apply to flat ground or land down some trees to try to funnel the deer movement? Yeah, for sure. Or in open flat ground, you can do it with crop manipulation uh, in terms of plant the edge you want them to travel. In other words, is there an edge between the corn and the beans or between the beans and the green? You know, those types of things. They love to travel edges, so you can do it with crops or inside the timber. You could you could certainly do it with timber stand improvement. Um, you could do it with a fence right down through the middle of the woods, give them a, give them a gap to go through, uh, those types of things. So you, you could help funnel movement with, with the right planning in place. Okay. Now, Mark, you mentioned a lot on, on other interviews I've heard in, in your videos about food. How important is food to you guys uh, when you relate it to the, the ratio of food you cover on a property uh, and your hunting setups? You know, it's, it's the most vital thing we do. Um, when we grew up hunting, um, it, you know, we really, we always did a few food plots, but we didn't, quite understand the enormity of the importance of food source. Uh, really, I think until we met Grant Woods back in the early 2000s, and, and Grant said something to me one day that has stuck with me, and it, the saying goes through my mind hundreds of times throughout the year, deer are slaves to their stomach. And that is such a true statement. They are literally dictated by that belly, and they, they'll get up and eat multiple times throughout the day. And uh, food wins the day more often than not. So you got to have water, you got to have cover, but you've got to have food. And if you, if you watch our stuff and if you've watched it evolve, most of the deer we're killing anymore has something to do with the food source. Whether we killed him in it or leaving it or coming to it, it's, it's all about that food. Now, are there any exceptions to that where you guys are not hunting near food or is that, you know, you're not going to hunt there unless you have a nice food source where you can pattern the deer or get close. Well, in the Midwest, and I suspect, you know, similar to you guys up there, I mean, this is the bread bread basket. So yep. it, 
doesn't exist where there's not food close. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, the food might be a mile away, but it's still dictating movement. You know, they're still either going to it or coming from it. It's just a matter of, you know, what time they get there and what time they leave it. So, it's, you know, everything we do revolves around food. It may not be food that was planted by our hands, but it was it, it was food planted by a farmer or a neighbor or, or something, and you just got to figure out, you know, when they're on that food source and how they're getting to it and how they're leaving it. So, you know, it's there's a food source there somewhere. And if not that, there's food source in the timber, you know, natural browse, acorns, all those different things vary greatly each year. And it'll change their patterns, you know, just depending on how the acorn crop was, how much rain you had in the spring, how much rain you're getting in the summer, you know, what the browse quality is like in in the cover. Uh, that stuff changes from year to year as well. So once you have your um, general area nailed down, Mark, what, what are you looking for for where you're going to put that plot, how you're going to locate it to that area based on their movements? Well, it really depends on the, the time of the year strategy, which goes back to your earlier question. You know, if, if you make the assumption that you kind of know what parts of the farm are good early, rut, and then late, then I'm going to come up with a food plot strategy that accommodates the early part of the farm with a deer, radish, or clover. I'm going to continue that type of plan into the rut, clover and deer, radishes, because those rule the day for us in the Midwest um, up until about Thanksgiving. That are, are beans or corn, obviously. But from a green food right. source, from a green food source, it's deer radishes or clover. And then when you graduate into late November, you still get some deer radish movement. You still get some clover movement. But depending on the fall, whether it's cold or, or a warm fall, you start to see them getting into more of the grains and more of the like the bigger bulbier stuff, like winter bulbs and sugar beets. Um, and then the late season, it's all about winter bulbs, sugar beets, um, corn, and beans. Unless, by chance, you get a really warm one, then you can still get them back on clover and, and whatnot. But I, I changed the strategy to the place that I'm planning based on the season that I think it's going to be the best or that picture history has told me it is the best. Then I want to optimize that area of the farm by having a, a really palatable food source in front of them for that time of the year. Wow. Okay. Well, do you have a particular shape that you like to plant or, or cut out of the woods, or does it also vary on the terrain that you're dealing with? Often with us, it varies on terrain and, and erosion. So we are limited by, you know, soil types uh, as to what we can plant and what we can't plant. I, you know, I just won't plant side hills because uh, I, don't, I don't like the erosion. Uh, so we're either on the top or on the bottom, and, and more often than not, shape of plot is dictated by, you know, topography. Now, if it's a clean chalkboard and a, a big bottom field and you have your choice, then, you know, I, I really – I think the ultimate food plot from a greenfield standpoint is about the size of a football field. It's big enough that it draws a lot of attention, but it's not small enough that they feel pinched down when they're there. Uh, I have noticed through the years, the smaller the plot, you think, okay, man, everything's within bow range of this plot. But I, I really don't see a lot of activity on plots that size. I really like a football field, you know, 100 yards by 50 yards. I think that's a, a great size to base things off of. And, it, and mm. more often than not, 
when a deer comes to it, they're going to at some point walk through the middle of that plot and they're going to get within range of you if you're at the 50-yard line. Yeah, that's interesting because up here where um, in Michigan, we, we find that a larger plot like that might be might make a deer a, a little bit nervous to at least come out in, in daylight hours. And when I say deer, I mean mature buck. Um, now, when you have that football field, I heard you mention it earlier, and I heard Terry mention it one time. What do you guys do with different crops in that field in terms of edges and height differences within the crops themselves? Well, <laughs> by that size, I'm talking about a field that's a green field. You know, for us to get corn or beans to work, when you're talking about true height differences, you know, that's, it takes generally a minimum of okay. three acres. Oftentimes, they're five to seven acres. So. Okay. You know, it, it takes a big field to grow. Otherwise, the browse pressure is, is so intense that it, it won't make. Um, I really like my grain fields to be at least five, and I prefer them to be seven to, seven to nine if you can get it. Um, but in, in terms of a small field, like a football field, you know, 50 by 100, then that's, that's something that, you know, I'm going to try to plant something on – the east half and the west half, or the north half and the south half, and, and incentivize movement across the 50-yard line, if, if that makes sense. You know, I want them going past me, going from one food to the other. So I, I often plant two crops in the same field, or I will plant the inner part of the field in one thing and the outer parts in another, depending on, you know, the overall strategy in that area. Okay, so say you're on one of the larger fields then. Um, is there a certain crop that you would put within maybe bull range 50 yards and under and then something you put out further um sure sure if i'm going for a bow range it's it's deer radishes if i'm going for gun range it's it's winter bulbs and sugar beets just because of the time of the year here you know early season that biologic deer radish is unbelievable most successful plot we have is is that plot product and non-typical clover they're both ridiculously good no that's great I think I, I see the picture now. And you're, you're normally putting your blind in the middle. Is that correct? To try to get them to move back and forth. I want to kind of cover how you determine where you're going to set your, your blind or your your stand set up. Yeah, you know, if all things are equal, yes. But more often than not, I'm in a corner or I'm on an edge or I'm, I'm watching it from a distance or with my cameras and then I move the blind to, um, you know, anticipate movement to or from sometimes i'm off the plot you know and I'm, I'm catching them coming past a certain area so that really just comes with overall um, knowledge of the plot and the movement in that area and then a setting up accordingly okay so it, the, the answer varies per plot honestly or per farm and it varies greatly is there one thing that you find more common along your farms that you hunt whether you're on like an inside corner or uh you know, sneaking up through a creek, up to a, a ridge, or, or where do you find yourself more more than not? More often than not, I'm in a bottom that has topography structure that allows a wind to be consistent, and I'm on the downwind side of that plot. Or I'm on the top of a ridge where the wind is typically consistent, and uh, I'm on the downwind side of the food and the cover. I, I You know, optimally... There's heavy cover upwind to me, and there's a food plot between me and the heavy cover, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I think that it can help our listeners determine a, a 
maybe a, a go-to, if you will, before anything else, at least a place to start, you know, when... when that's why I spend so much time looking at maps. I'm looking for cover, and I'm looking at, at wind and where it might be consistent and where it might not be consistent. Um, you know, here, it's a bear trying to get that wind right, man. I mean, it's it's wrong more often than it is right. So wind scouting is of vital importance here. You have to go spend time in that area on the wind you plan to hunt it on to see whether it's even going to work. And more often than not, Plot locations and plans are thrown out the door just because the wind isn't right. How do you do that wind scouting? Real quick, I'm, I'm curious on that. I've heard of guys starting little fires in their in their tree stand and and things like that, playing with um, milkweed. How do you scout? I just stand there with a puffer, check it over <laughs> a long. All right, no big secrets there. Okay. Yeah, I just check it over a long period of time. I check it with the leaves on, and then again when the leaves off, and at high speed wind and low speed wind. And it's, it's amazing how many spots will vary. Like, there are certain spots that I can get by if the wind's under 10. Then you go there over 10, and it's curling back on you. So a lot of it has to do with speed and foliage. Great tips. Great tips. Now, you mentioned access. Do you normally have more than one access route to your food plot and or blind location on that plot? And if so, why? No, it's always just one generally, okay. um, you know, because I'm again in my you know optimal uh, setup. The bedding care, the bedding covers upwind. The the food is between me and the bedding cover, and the access is is coming in with the wind in my face. That's optimal. They don't always work out that way, but that's what I'm seeking. Okay. I'm moving right along here. I know you're a a data driven guy based on all that, that I've heard you say over the past how many years. Um, how do you go about logging your information to know if some of your habitat manipulation has worked, doesn't work? I know when I sit in a tree, I sit there and think about all the things I need to change. Uh, that, you know, does, Do you do that, or, or how do you go about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I keep in my notes in my iPhone, I'm constantly writing down my to-do list when I'm <laughs> sitting there. So... The list is long. <laughs> it just you sit there and you go, oh man, I should have cut that tree, or I, I really need to mow that path next year. So, I, you know, my notes are really my memory because I'll forget when I leave there, because uh, you know you get other things in your mind and whatnot. But you go back to those notes and you go, oh yeah, I need to do that. You know, so the best thing to do is just keep really detailed notes about, you know, what you need to get done the following year. So, and and yes, I'm a data driven guy, but I don't keep data-driven notes uh, my notes are my my notes are my trail photos so i'm looking at those cross-referencing those with actual sightings and then i'm, I'm making decisions based okay now do you have any sort of uh spreadsheet you use for for the different wind directions and things like that on the on the days your camera sees a nice buck or anything like that or does any of that come into play I don't, but I'll look that up through weather history. So, okay. uh, you know, I'll, I'll go find an app that allows the history of the weather and, and go backwards and look at what the weather was that day. And then that's, it's really how we developed DeerCast, honestly, uh, was going back and looking at pictures over many, many years going, why the hell was every mature buck on my farm on his feet today at 1 o'clock, you know? Right. And 
go back and look and go, ah, oh, that's it. And you, you start connecting the dots. That's how we built the algorithm for DeerCast. It took us, God, I bet a decade. Uh, but once we figured the code out, we're pretty confident in what the hell makes a move, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, and that app is great. Brian and I both used it last year, and, I mean, you do have everything covered in there from the pressure to the, the moon phase and everything, so that's that's really awesome. Um, and we we tweaked that algorithm after two years of observing it. There were a couple minor tweaks that we did really? as it as it pertained to wind speed, as it pertained to pressure over an elongated period, as it pertained to dark in the moon. We we added some things in there. And the other thing that we're changing about the algorithm for next year, and it's going to be so cool, it'll be out here in Gen two. But the user will have the ability to. Uh, tweak the optimism and pessimism for his own farm, which is going to be really cool. Now, what if you're just a real negative guy? <laughs> well, you know, you got to let the deer tell you, right? They're they're not optimistic or pessimistic. They're just trying to stay alive. So, like you know, it. It, it's uh, it'll allow somebody to tweak it to their own hunting area. Okay, that's great. And back to, real quick to the the information log. Um, and you keep a notes throughout the season. When do you go back in and start working on habitat-related changes? I mean, do you wait for the snow to, to melt, or are you in there, you know, day after season with a chainsaw? I, personally, I wait till they, their antler shed, you know. I just I don't want to run them out of the farm and, and uh, let somebody else, you know, have a shot at them if they're poaching. You know, I, I just try to try to minimize too much intrusion, honestly. And even then, I, I don't like to intrude very much. I'll, I'm very, very quiet in our approach, if we can be. Now, if you got to go in with dozers and, you know, big equipment, you just got to go do it, you know. But then you want to get it done as quickly as possible and minimize hu- human intrusion. So anytime from shed antler drop all the way up till you know, you're finishing your plots in August of the following season. Uh, Mark, uh, you and Terry have uh, – different properties around different states. Uh, do you guys have a similar strategy, or do you guys differ on some things? He's left-handed, and I'm right-handed, so <laughs> you, you can <laughs> take it from there. Uh, we have a lot of similar strategies, but we also have our own thoughts and and processes and procedures, and I think that's one of the things that, that makes the brand stronger and gives it more credibility because – you know, not every approach is the right one. You know, really, um, you know, just being open-minded and learning from others is the best way to become a better deer hunter. The, the best deer hunters you'll meet are the ones that listen the most and, and ask the most questions because they're trying to learn, you know. And um, that's the way Terry and I are. We're constantly questioning each other about what we've done on our farms or to kill a particular deer, and, and we've learned a lot from each other by having separate approaches, honestly. And the, the older we get, the more closely those uh, approaches probably mirror each other just because we've learned from each other and from so many of our friends. You know, so many of our friends are such good whitetail hunters, and when we get around them, we just don't stop asking questions. Is there one thing that you guys have a difference of opinion on that you do that he doesn't do? No, not not too many, really, honestly. No, we're... Not not specifically, no. Okay. And you talk about uh, other hunters being good listeners. Is there anything that comes up over the course of your conversations that you see that uh, some habitat managers might be doing wrong or something they might be missing? 
Hmm. You know, I think the thing that people, the common mistake, and I've answered this question similar to on other, other you know, programs, that the mistake that guys make the most is underestimating the effect of human intrusion on the white-tailed deer and, and the way they react to that human intrusion. Um, so often I think guys uh, underestimate their ability to react to their patterns and, and avoid hunting pressure and avoid getting killed. They are masters at it. And um, I think when guys underestimate that, they have a tendency to be on their farms too much uh, because the temptation is so high. It's like, man, I love being in the woods. I want to be out there. I want to be doing stuff. And you really need to minimize that in order to to not affect your ability to kill an animal in, in the fall. Now that's that's great information. It's something we talk about a lot on here, and it's it's more it's tougher to walk the walk though than to talk that talk. You know, to to stay out. So really appreciate you mentioning that. I almost am never in my timbers. I have I still have places on my farms I've never been to in my life. Wow. Uh, just, I just won't go there if it's a sacred bedding area. Unless I'm tracking a deer, uh, I generally will not walk there. See, we thought that may have been a little different out, you know, where you're at on your farms, but, you know, same thing holds true. Wow, that's great. Yeah, just uh, let, them, let them be comfortable. The more comfortable they are, the greater your chances of seeing them during daylight. The less comfortable they are, the, the less your chances are of seeing a deer during daylight. High-pressure deer, high-pressure deer will go nocturnal on you in an instant. Wow. Well, Mark, I want to be respectful of your time. It's just after uh, 10.30. I don't know if you want to talk about the farm giveaway or if you got to go. Either way works for that. Yeah, you betcha. Um, we, we are doing a giveaway this year. Um, it's our 30th anniversary, and uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with DeerCast which is the app that we developed and, and released last year. We have Gen 2 of that app coming out this year. But right now, even within that, that DeerCast app or on our, on our website, you can go to enter a farm that we are um, dressing up, and we're going to give it away in December of this year, uh, commemorating our 30th anniversary. We're also giving away prize packages every month on the month uh, just as a way to say thank you. Uh, if you go to DeerCast, go to the lower bottom bar you can see farm giveaway press that little icon takes you through a few steps and you register to win the farm you're also registered to win any of the monthly prizes and uh we just wanted to say thank you for 30 incredible years it's been been a a fun ride and uh terry and i are are forever thankful for the opportunity we've been we've been given that's awesome what what an amazing giveaway we heard about it at ata and just we looked at each other like, did they just say a farm? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just awesome. Yeah, it's, it's 60 acres in Putnam County, Missouri with tremendous cover, water. Uh, we've added the food, big, pretty timber, and uh, literally a little slice of heaven there in Putnam County, Missouri. We really, really like the farm, and we can't wait to give it away. Oh, that's great, Mark. Well, you guys aren't retiring, right? That doesn't mean you're retiring. Yeah, you <laughs> What are we going to do, go hunting once we retire? <laughs> no, that's good to hear. We've been uh, big-time followers for a long time and really just, you know, honored that you came on the, the Habitat Podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I really just appreciate your time. 
Hey, thank you guys for having me, and uh, best of luck to everybody out there. Spring's coming, and uh, my favorite time of the year, turkey season, right right around the corner. Well, good luck to you this yes, spring. Sir. Okay, take care, guys. All right, see you, Mark. Thank, thank you, Mark. You. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, guys, another episode, not just any episode, in the books for the Habitat Podcast. Brian, what do you think about Mark? Oh, that's outstanding. I always enjoy listening to uh, his strategies and how he approaches not only deer hunting, but now we got some insight to how he goes about with his habitat. And it's nice to have all this information at your fingertips. I don't want to show my age too much, but I can remember having to go to the video store early on in the late 80s and early 90s if I wanted to get some information from the juries. Wow. Yeah, no, I I mean, even when I was growing up, we it'd only be, you know, VHS for the juries at first, and then, you know, moved on after that, DVDs and, and of course, the TV shows. But, I mean, Mark's nice enough to come on and talk to a couple of hillbillies like us. That's pretty cool. I'm excited. Absolutely. I know uh, it's a great episode, guys. Be sure to check out their app. The, it's called DeerCast. You'll find that in the Android or iTunes store. And make sure you sign up for the farm giveaway that he mentioned at the end of the episode there. They're giving away an actual farm. I mean, who does that? It's amazing. So I'm make, real. make sure you go on there. I'm signed up. Brian signed up. We're hoping to be farm owners in Missouri here soon. Um, among, you know, the million other people, but still, it's pretty awesome. Now, guys, if you like this episode, please go on iTunes and leave us a great review. Please share with your friends, other hunters and habitat managers. Uh, we really appreciate that. We're trying to grow, and, uh, you know, we we love the help that you guys give us in, uh, in aiding us to do so. Um, You've done a great job so far, you guys the fans, and we really want you to continue. So thank you to our listeners. I want to thank the sponsors as well. I want to thank you to the Habitat Hook, Killer Food Plots, Packer Max line of Cultipackers, Dip That, Hydrographics, and Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. If you want to hear more episodes from us, guys, be sure to check us out on HabitatPodcast.com iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Wherever you can find a podcast, we will be on there, even on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to check us out. Thanks again for tuning in. We're going to have more great guests coming up soon, so stay tuned as we become better Habitat Managers.
Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss life on the water. Every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damned. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.